Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. I'm Erica Cruz Guevara, and you're listening to The Bay. Local news to keep you rooted. In San Francisco's Chinatown, a whopping 70% of families living in communal housing oppose in-person learning for their kids. And now, with the school year already underway, hundreds of families living in single-room occupancy hotels are organizing to keep their kids out of school. They have to wait a week and they can't quarantine themselves in their SRO, right? Because everything's communal, right? It's, it's, it's a big worry that, you know, other units are going to spread to them, vice versa. Today, why many Chinatown families say they want more distance learning. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, what's up? I'm Erica Cruz Guevara, the host of The Bay. Donations keep independent journalism alive and healthy. And you support outstanding journalism when you support KQED. So if you haven't yet, check out donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcasts with an S. There was this messaging going about since last year when when parents really wanted their kids to go back into schools. And a lot of this was affluent parents, parents who are working from home, who are just going bonkers because their kids are around all day, understandably so. Joe Fitzgerald Rodriguez is a reporter and producer for KQED. There are groups, advocacy groups, um, like what was formerly called Decrease the Distance, uh, who are pushing for schools to reopen. And that kind of tended to dominate the conversation a little bit. And so I decided I wanted to talk to different folks, especially because the Chinese community is so large in San Francisco. I was like, let me just talk to lots of different folks from different backgrounds. So SRO is a single room occupancy hotel where you rent a room instead of an apartment. And there's like X number of rooms on a floor, maybe 30, and they share a bathroom and a kitchen communally. And there are lots of families who are in these rooms. So it's like a family of four in bunk beds in a room with all their stuff stored, stuffed underneath the bunk beds and up high in shelves. And there's no room to quarantine at all. For those folks who are living in SROs, it's a really scary prospect. 
there's more than 55,000 people living in SROs in San Francisco. That's a huge population. That's yeah. a lot of people. In crammed spaces, too. In crammed spaces, yeah. Hey, Tang Guanchang. Hello there. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, hello. How are you? Mr. Tan, you know, he lives in his single room with his wife and his 15-year-old son and his 8-year-old daughter. They go to school in San Francisco, SFUSD. I spoke with Mr. Tan through a translator. He He's very worried because his elementary school kid is too young to be vaccinated. I feel safe. Having her learn at home, because at home I can control the environment. Since the Delta variant has come, his fears have only increased. You know, they share one bedroom. They live in the same room. And then on top of that, if he sends his kids back to school, they'll be on muni buses. That's how they get to school. Mm. So can they keep themselves safe riding muni on the way to school? I know the schools that they take different safety protocols but uh, have no control over, like, from the from the moment she step out of the home, get on uni, into the school, uh, who they, the kids will interact with, friends and teachers and environment. My kids could come in contact with COVID at school and bring it home, and then I don't have enough room to quarantine because we live in a small apartment. If my kids infected in school, then one of the kids will come home and we have no place to quarantine. When everyone was allowed to bring their kids back to school in April, he did not bring his kids back to school. And, and he continued to do distance learning. And it was only when, in the fall semester, when distance learning was far harder to get into and had far higher hurdles, did he say, well, it looks like I have no choice. I have to bring my kids back to school. And he is just deathly afraid about it. Are Mr. Tan's concerns similar to what you hear from other parents? Yeah. So, you know, the Chinatown Community Development Center is a nonprofit in the community um, that uh, administers all types of housing, but uh, affordable housing, uh, but also is in charge of SRO housing too. And when they started hearing these voices bubbling up in the community, bubbling up in their SROs saying, we're really afraid to go back to school, they decided, hey, we're going to just call everyone. And so they designed a survey and they called almost all of their tenants who had families. And, you know, they have a very good data on their tenants, so they know who all the families are. And more than 70% of those families said, we don't want to go back to school. We don't want our kids back inside schools. We want them distance learning or at least to have some sort of hybrid option or any other option uh, besides just pure in-person learning. I know we talked about Mr. Tan's specific concerns. Um, can you talk about why so many people are worried? There is data, strong data, that says that students learn better in person. And so when we're talking about returning to classrooms and when we're talking about kids being in classrooms, there is a mountain's worth of data saying that folks fell behind or kids fell behind when they were learning from a distance. So I don't want to minimize that at all when we have this discussion about how 
these communities feel safe. But there's actually a, a, a deep layer of reasons. And really what tended to make the difference was economics and language. And I think that's the complexity in it all in that is that a majority of our parents feel like they have no choice but to have to put their kids back in school. Jen Chan is uh, uh, raised in San Francisco, and she works at Chinatown CDC. She's actually in charge of of that housing that we're talking about. She uh, oversees those SROs, so she knows very well. She has to deal with their concerns on a daily basis, and so she hears what they're going through, and this is what she had to say. You just don't know what you don't know, right? And when you don't know what you don't know, and you have to send your kids to school, you know, and they can't be vaccinated, you don't speak the language, right? You don't understand English. The access of news flowing to you comes at a slower rate, I would say, right? Folks who are a little more affluent tended to have more resources. They feel they could, you know, take care of their kids. Something happens and they have to go to the hospital, for instance, or, you know, they need to quarantine them in a bedroom. Um, And then also when they're speaking in English, they have better access to the school. One thing I kept hearing again and again from monolingual Cantonese-speaking parents through translators to me is that we feel like the school district hasn't been talking with us. Your parents don't have the up-to-date information as maybe an English-speaking parent who can watch the news, who can read up on the data, right? So there's, there's, a, lot of, there's a lot of fear. They have flyers where they give us information, but they don't come and ask us questions, what we need, or, you know, they don't spend that time in an information exchange. Like, we don't feel like we're a part of this decision-making process. And they're saying, you know, that they feel like they're powerful forces that are more able to pull the levers of government. Are they just afraid of coronavirus? No. Some of them are very afraid of anti-Asian violence, whether it's out in the street, walking to school, or on buses, especially on muni buses. And so it's, there's a very real fear. You know, you know with the increase of um, you know, a lot of the AAPI hate crimes, a lot of our older students are actually nervous about being in public transportation, you know, being at the bus stops by themselves, being potentially the next target of somebody who sees them and, you know, for whatever reason, wants to attack them. What have Chinatown families done with these concerns that so many of them have? They're beginning to organize. You know, there's WeChat groups with, you know, hundreds of people in them that I've been monitoring and seeing a few with like 400 each. And so there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of parents trying to organize and uh, make sure that their voices are heard. They christen themselves CPAC. Chinese Parent Advisory Council. And so they drafted a letter to the school board. They were asking for uh, more um, participation uh, with, uh, with planning for their students' futures, uh, especially for monolingual communities like they often are. They asked for more uh, distance learning slots or hybrid learning options so that they could practice school safely and, and not have to worry about their kids as much. And they, they're hoping that the school board will actually hear them out. 
The district says it has already admitted 700 students to its online learning program, and even extended applications for one of two independent learning programs to accommodate a growing number of students wanting to stay home. But some Chinatown families say it isn't enough, and that those who want to apply actually don't for fear of losing priority at their desired schools. Others aren't aware that distance learning is an option. This organizing that you're talking about, Joe, that these parents in Chinatown were doing, has any of it resulted in any kind of movement from the district? The school board just moved forward a resolution to support more distance learning. It's not binding. It's just the the school board saying that we are in support of it. And that just got sent to committee first week of September. And, uh, you know, it's, it's still controversial. It's still not a done deal yet. So in the meantime, do parents like Mr. Tan just kind of have to send their kids to school and hope for the best? They do. And, you know, I asked um, school board member Jenny Lamb if school is safe for Mr. Uh, Tan to send his, his, his kid back. And I asked directly. I would encourage Mr. Tan that absolutely um, we have the pro- protocols and guidelines in place. You know, one solution is uh, not necessarily that distance learning has to happen. One of the things these families themselves talk about the most is that they feel like they these decisions haven't been made with them in lockstep with them. Maybe they just need mitigating measures. Uh, some have talked about hybrid measures instead of just purely going back to class. It's not an on or off switch. It's not a binary. There's a lot of nuance. And I think the key central thing is that these folks are feeling like they haven't been heard and they need decisions being made with them instead of just running past them. Joe, you've been covering San Francisco Chinatown for a long time. Why do you think it's important to cover this story about how communal housing residents feel about going back to school? I think this is an important story to cover because it's definitely a set of voices that doesn't always get heard in San Francisco government, in San Francisco media, often because of that language barrier. It's a monolingual Cantonese-speaking community, and that can be a hard bridge to build. It's also a community that can be impoverished and lacks in resources, and it's very easy when we are marching ahead with resources for those who are clamoring to come back to school to ignore the resources for those who, who don't have them for themselves. And it's also a story about who gets heard and when and why. More than this specific situation, more than just what's happening now, it it certainly begs the question of why. Joe, thank you so much, and thank you for your reporting. Oh, thank you. Thank you for doing this, and thank you for um, asking all these great questions. San Francisco Board of Education President Gabriela Lopez says she and other board members are working on a resolution asking the district to address the SRO family's concerns. SFUSD Board of Education Commissioner Jenny Lam has also been meeting with these SRO families. 
That's it for the show today. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, tell a friend about it and follow us wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss the next episode. Thanks to Joe Fitzgerald Rodriguez, reporter and producer for KQED. You can also find him on Twitter at FitzTheReporter. This episode of The Bay was produced and cut by Christopher Beal. I added the music and the tape. Our editor is Alan Montecilio. We're made by your local public media station, KQED. I'm Erica Cruz Guevara. That's it for us. Talk to you all next time. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.